The unsettling but inevitable news came on Saturday, March 7, 2020. Dr. Lee Norman confirmed during a news conference at the Capitol that Kansas had its first case of the novel coronavirus. It was a woman living in Johnson County who had traveled to the Northeast in the United States. Since then, more than 311,000 Kansans have been infected. No corner of the state has been immune. People under one year of age and folks as old as 108 tested positive. 45 of the state's 105 counties had more than 1,000 confirmed cases. Overall, more than 5,000 infected Kansans have died. Only the callous would be dismissive of those numbers. Dr. Norman, Secretary of the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, has been at the center of this public health storm. He's catching his breath today, so to speak, during a visit to the Kansas Reflector. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate being here, Tim. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here to talk about COVID-19. Well, doctor, what do you think the state of health is in Kansas 14 months into this pandemic? Well, the state of the health of Kansas is something I've worried a great deal about because we have many things going on in public health, but obviously COVID-19 has overshadowed everything and we're getting better. Uh, Our trend lines for the things that are the biggest to us, uh, the number of cases per capita is going down, the number of deaths per capita is going down, and the number of hospitalizations per capita is going down. So those are the big marks. Uh, there's lots of other metrics and, and performance indicators we follow, but for those three big ones, uh, they're coming down quite directly related to the vaccine availability and the vaccination program we've been doing. So I'm very encouraged, and matter of fact, very enthusiastic for where we are right now. There's new emphasis on vaccinating teenagers. That's a good sign. Yes, very much so. There, We do know that young people are very adept at uh, catching the illness and spreading the illness um, all the way from uh, even younger than teenagers on up. And many of them are not symptomatic, so they are very effective at spreading it, uh, even though they may not know that they themselves are infected. Should students need to be vaccinated before we're returning to school? We're talking about K-12 kids or even college students. I would hope that they would want to be um, vaccinated. And uh, again, with the news now that we can vaccinate those 12 and older, we're getting a lot of enthusiasm about it. And I'm hoping that in some situations that the kids will serve as good role models for their parents because it's not unheard of that parents will bring in their Uh, 12-year-old to 18-year-olds, those who have to get consent from their parents to get it, and the parents may not have been vaccinated. What we want to do is uh, vaccinate them all. So do you think the, as we go on, first of all, is there plenty of vaccine? For as we as we lower the age and broaden the base of people available? Yeah, we have a lot of vaccine. Okay. There's no shortage. We have weeks in inventory that's ready to go, and we hope to burn through it pretty quickly With now that we have the 12 and older. So we mm-hmm. hope to really go through it much more quickly. You assume the vaccination age will continue to go down uh, and... And or will is there is there a baseline there of five years old, four years old for which we probably won't go? I think that eventually we'll have every everybody six months of age and older. These clinical trials are just starting now on the much younger ones. I don't think that below the age of twelve we'll likely uh, have a vaccine in place before the start of school in the fall. That would be the optimal if we could, in the summertime, start vaccinating those under the age of 12. But that depends on the, one, the the pace of the clinical trials, and then two, the, the regulatory approval process. What percentage of the population in Kansas is fully vaccinated? I presume you, the numbers would reflect adults. 
Yes, for the most part. Uh, we do know that right at 40% of the Kansans have received uh, their first dose, and that equates to about 1.2 million first doses. And then we have another 900,000 or so doses that are the second dose, meaning the fully vaccinated ones. Do you have a target for what you'd like to see? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. The What you're really asking is what is herd immunity? Mm-hmm. And one of the things we do know, even though people focus on numbers like 70 to 80% as being necessary for herd immunity, herd immunity is really more of a state or a, a process to get to and not necessarily a hard, fast number. We don't know what herd immunity number would necessarily be. I would like to see it at 80, 80% or greater. Hmm, that's pretty. I've heard seven in the 70% range, but 80. I'm picky. Okay. So where in Kansas are the vaccination gaps? Urban areas, communities of color, rural enclaves? The, the, the demographics are quite clear. Uh, let's, let's take racial first. Uh, whites and Asians tend to be more vaccinated than Hispanics, although Hispanic and Latinx individuals are not far behind. And then African-Americans are probably the least vaccinated group, despite what I think is a very credible effort towards um, getting uh, racial and ethnic um, vaccines uh, attended to. We do know that uh, urban is more vaccinated than rural. We know that the the younger people, let's say 18 to 30, are some of the least vaccinated individuals. We know that white evangelical Christians tend to not be as vaccinated as people from other faiths. We know that conservatives are less likely to be vaccinated than people of more liberal political ideologies. It's it's no surprise that politics has has revealed itself in during the COVID nineteen. We see that in the Capitol all the time. But uh, you know that's a bunch of politicians getting together and yelling at each other, not necessarily mom and pop on the farm in Northwest Kansas. So right, but it does. You know, when leaders, um, I think, undermine the credibility or the importance, it does percolate out into every corner of the state. And some people don't even want to let it be known that they have been vaccinated and kind of go sneak around and go get it. Um, Otherwise, they might have the disfavor of family members or uh, people in their community. And it's just a shame when there's an ideology that dissuades people from getting an uh, immunization, especially something that is as terrifically, terrifically successful as this vaccine and very, very safe. Mm -hmm. So we have new Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidance on masks. Essentially, I think fully vaccinated people can go without a face covering in most circumstances. I think if you travel on an airplane, bus, train, they want it. So what do we think about that? I'm enthusiastic for it. I think that We've known a long time that outdoor is safe, and I think that the numbers that we originally were hearing about in terms of the number of cases that occurred outside was artificially high, and I think that the uh, information just out from the CDC um, aligns really the right thing to do on uh, being unmasked outside makes a lot of sense. I think it was a bold move uh, to say that fully vaccinated people unmasked indoors uh, don't need to even socially distanced. So I think it's a good move. It will cause a problem, I think, because unvaccinated people kind of will open the door for them to uh, not wear masks and not socially distance. Because the word from the CDC that just came out doesn't change anything for unvaccinated persons. Mm-hmm. So Governor Kelly advised Kansans to follow the CDC's guidance. You concur? Yeah, we uh, contributed to the statement that the governor put out. And um, again, enthusiastically, because I think 
it's kind of, in a sense, rewarding what I think is good public health behavior, and that's to become immune to a disease that's been our number one killer in the state over the past year. And it's a little weird that people would be willing to take the risk for whatever reason. Right. And, you know, we're still not risk-free completely. And what Mm I want the message to be is that rather than to necessarily just um, blindly march to rules to understand these are risk-based personal decisions and people should want to remain healthy. And you cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that we're still seeing a lot of COVID-19 and we're still seeing occasional deaths out there. On that point, people are still getting the virus and people are still dying. I believe the elderly were particularly hard hit by COVID-19, but who's dying now and, and who is getting this virus? It's uh, unvaccinated people that are getting the virus and they're the ones that go into hospitals and die. Uh, the, uh, for, and a great example is we've had an outbreak in nursing homes, nursing facilities, and you know who's getting it? It's the staff. And it's a, you know, Talking 30, about right now. Right now. 30 to 40-year-old staffers that come in that are unvaccinated are the ones that then can spread it. The really good news is that we go in and do testing of everybody, every staff and resident. And in that setting, we've even seen a few of the residents that are older and, and uh, medically uh, fragile that have tested positive but not had any symptoms at all. And that, I guarantee you, is a person that would have been hospitalized with a high likelihood of bad outcome. Um, but the fact is they are fully vaccinated and they breeze through it without any symptomatology at all. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You would think that health settings, hospitals, nursing homes, that the owners of that would require employees to, to get vaccinated. But maybe that's not the case because anyone should have a right, I guess, to refuse a medical service. Well, uh, hospitals require, and this has been quite a number of years now, influenza vaccine. I think the sticking point now is that none of these are approved by the FDA and that they are being administered under emergency use authorization. I'm a military person myself. I'm an Army colonel, and we don't require and feel we cannot require uh, DOD guidance backs us up on this, that we can't require soldiers and airmen and Marines and sailors to necessarily to get the vaccine to in order to stay on active duty. Uh, but I think that will change quite likely when the, it's approved by the FDA. Yeah. So eventually this could be part of the package of inoculations that uh, service members receive. And hospital and nursing staff. Yeah. Uh, sorry, it. nursing facility so, staff. So time will dictate that. Yes. So what do you think about the legislature's decision to earmark about a half a billion dollars in federal COVID-19 aid to compensate businesses that dealt with city, county, and state restrictions. I'm not necessarily asking you to wade into the politics of this, but it appears that the passage of that legislation is a rebuke of the public health professionals during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I think that uh, if, if we can help businesses be strong and if it means uh, compensating in, in uh, some manner for how they've uh, uh, not been able to uh, thrive, financially speaking, then I think that's great. I think if if it's an attempt to slap down the decisions from the time, I think that's pretty bad judgment or pretty bad uh, view of the situation. You know, when when we looked at uh, schools and uh, going to virtual learning, when we looked at stay-at-home orders and shelter in place, uh, we didn't know what the future was going to look like. It was very uncertain. So to come back a year later and go through the retrospectoscope and say, oh, yeah, uh, you didn't choose well. That's Monday morning quarterbacking that I think is kind of, uh, uh, I don't think it's even fair. 
Yeah, there were there were certainly politicians who who made stupid remarks a year ago, and uh, and not everybody's looking back upon them. Uh, you know, there's an evolution of thought there, and that should apply to everyone. So, what do we think? Maybe armchair quarterbacking this. What do we think about the limit on contact tracing? Uh, as it was made a voluntary process in Kansas. Essentially, it was, and we couldn't rely on schools or employers, for example, to give us information that who was the working next to them on the assembly line or who were sitting close to the kids that became infected. So it was kind of tied one hand behind our back. Uh, fortunately, uh, people were forthcoming and would oftentimes voluntarily give that information. Uh, but it, there's no question that it hampered our case investigation and contact tracing. Um, but we went on undaunted anyway and said, uh, you know, we're not, in, we're not interested in violating anybody's privacy, we just, but we do feel compelled to understand the spread of this virus so as to protect other people from getting sick. I, that's just, that's, that's uh, public health guidance that's hundreds of years old. That's just not new. Yeah, I think if my neighbor had mad cow disease, I think I'd want to know about it. Yeah, I think, I think that's right, especially if, if there was a risk that you were in contact or at risk because of it. Yeah. There's also a prohibition on so-called vaccination passports. And uh, do you think this will have any consequence in Kansas? I don't think it will. Uh, we've not shown any interest um, in terms of uh, uh, p- having an effort towards pushing for vaccination passports. We will always have concern without having any proof that whether somebody's vaccinated or not. But again, back to risk-based decision-making, I just assume that I don't want to get in a, in a small space with a lot of people of uncertain uh, vaccination status, but I'm not going to go query them as to whether they have it or not. I'm going to assume that they're infected. And uh, does that mean that I'll wear a mask all the time outside, inside? No. If I'm in a basement bar someplace with a low ceiling and people whooping it up and making noise and drinking and and not having a mask on i'm going to be reluctant to go i won't go into a situation like that yeah for example you drove over to our building here and you got out of the vehicle and we were standing out in the street waiting for you and you didn't have a mask on right and you were outside and uh all the people sitting here are fully vaccinated Mm -hmm. so um that's just an example of of the conduct but you're suggesting that if you went to a restaurant we'll say Mm -hmm and uh, of unknown people there uh-huh. that you would you would more likely wear a mask? I would in, in terms of going in and out. Um, when I'm sitting down um, and having my own meal or a drink or something, I'm going to take a mask off. I'm not going to worry about it. I have faith in this vaccine. Mm-hmm. It is spectacularly successful. And uh, I'm following the guidance. that I'm practicing what I preach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. So recently, some prominent Kansas politicians asked the governor to turn off the federal unemployment benefit tap to basically put economic pressure on people to return to work. Uh, my question is, is, is there any, tell me, doctor, any legitimate risk for some people going back to work, perhaps if you are unvaccinated? If people are unvaccinated and want to go back to work, then they need to do what we've been saying all along, which is mask wearing, social distancing, and hand washing. And hopefully the employment site can accommodate that. Um, I do worry a little bit about um, the what we call the um, 
social determinants of health. People that are poor or people that don't have enough money to live on are more likely to get infected and are more likely to have bad clinical outcomes. We know that certain neighborhoods are that way, certain racial and ethnic groups. So I hope that whatever is done from an unemployment and financial perspective, I, I hope it doesn't select out the people that are the most disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the rush to, to surge a big mass of people back into the workforce right. uh, could could complicate things for people who are right. vulnerable, right? And um, and and yet, I like the idea of people being productive. I like mm-hmm. the idea of working, and I like the idea of businesses thriving. And I do know that um, there's shortages of workforce right now for the number of uh, jobs that are out there. Yeah. So if I'm working for seven dollars an hour, and there's a labor shortage, I'm feeling possibly better because maybe I'll get nine. Yeah. You know? Well, I would hope that the, in that manner, I hope the law of supply and demand would uh, carry the day. Right. So looking back over all these months, help us understand what it was like to be you. You were at the point of the spear in terms of the state's response. These were life and death moments. Did you feel that? Oh, absolutely. The, uh, there, there it was a point in time where um, I was contacted uh, to have a security detail attached, which I did. Uh, Plains clothes uh, deputy sheriff and anytime I was going to be in a public setting uh, there was very negative sentiment against not just me but all public health persons in some measure not just in Kansas but throughout the country there's there's only 55 of us that are state health officers in the states and territories and I think we've probably had 20 that have resigned been fired been threatened into quitting and quit. Uh, so there's been a big turnover. Ditto that for in Kansas. We've had a lot of local health officers. I was with some just this past Friday, as a matter of fact, meeting with them and and kind of looking back uh, at what a tumultuous year it's been. I've been deployed uh, with the military. I've been deployed in, in dangerous areas. And um, I, was set, I was taken back by how vulnerable I felt at certain points along the way for um, this kind of uh, angry threatening behavior. That attrition rate is shocking and doesn't bode well for Kansans if there's another one of these pandemics. Right. And, you know, at some point people, um, well, first off, it's not like public health professionals are rolling in the bucks. It's in many locations, it's all but a volunteer position uh, with minimal compensation. So people look in the mirror and say, do I really need this? Um, Mm -hmm. I'm committed. I've been in my post here for 20 years. I'm a pillar of the community uh, as a physician takes care of a lot of these, including the county commissioners are beating up on me. And at some point they just say, is this really worth it? We, what I think is really important is to appreciate public health for what it tries to do. Yeah, so you have to have seen this too, being around uh, medical settings. How does this weigh on, on health professionals? I'm thinking about, for example, people who worked in COVID units at KU Medical mm-hmm. Center. Yeah, and I've been in close contact all the time with my professional colleagues at hospitals, small, medium, and large, critical access, but all, especially the large units that had a lot of uh, COVID patients. And man, I'll tell you, it's a grind. A lot of people got sick, and the, God, the godsend called the vaccine really helped to elevate the mood. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you talk about um, post-traumatic stress. We have a, a lot of built-up stress out there in our providers, a lot of exhaustion, and uh, that doesn't go away overnight. Um, And it's especially true when they find themselves uh, being pulled two different directions, 
and getting the immense frustration of people coming in that could be vaccinated. Right now, it's all unvaccinated people for the most part coming in the hospital sick. And the and it's it's hard to not be angry at people for not being vaccinated and for voluntarily getting sick. I know they don't wake up one day and say, I'm gonna, I wanna go get sick from COVID, but they should be preventing it by getting a vaccine. Right, it must certainly must be frustrating. So um, what about something that you think KDHE absolutely nailed in terms of COVID-19. And then I'll ask the follow-up question about something that perhaps you would like a redo on. So why don't you go with, first with what you got absolutely right. Maybe there's more than one example, but just ex- yeah. uh, just as uh, offer one. Gosh, that'll take me a minute because we did so many things so right. Uh, but the, I think more than anything, um, the forecasting we did uh, of how much disease activity was there going to be? Where was it going to be located? Do we need to build uh, hard-walled facilities? We chose not to. And mm-hmm. the reason was because we figured out early that it wasn't going to be bed shortages. It was going to be staffing shortages. And you can build white elephants and not ever put a single patient in. A lot of, a lot of states did that. So I think our forecasting and then choosing to do things and not do things based on those forecasts. Uh, we didn't, we chose not to buy hydroxychloroquine. And the reason was we talked to people in Europe and they said it doesn't work. So we're not going to buy it at the top I of the I think market. Oklahoma ended up with a million dollars worth of that stuff. Right. So I'm, I'm real pleased with the, and with the forecasting and the decisions made based on the forecasting and also informing governor and the governor's office because it percolates into public policy. What would I, what would I do different in uh, looking back? I think for sure what we underestimated was the impact of social psychology on how people were reacting to the uh, one, the the political upheaval and the divisiveness and and, uh, so polarized. And I think that I thought, and you know, I was a social worker before I went to medical school. If anybody should have tumbled to this, it should have been me. And that is the social psychology really needed as much attention as the science, the virology and the evidence. We put a lot of, uh, a lot of eggs in the basket of if we talk to people and, and share openly, transparently, the science, epidemiology, that they will follow suit with me because they believe in science and and uh, those and evidence. We are wrong. Yeah, logic doesn't always prevail. No, no. On that point, the governor of South Dakota came to Topeka recently, and she offered very sharp <clears throat> criticism of the Kansas governor in terms of of COVID. <clears throat> Maybe you don't know, but South Dakota invited people to come visit the state as sort of an adult playground. Uh, in, in, in because there weren't really many COVID restrictions. So if I did the math right, in South Dakota, policies had been in place in Kansas, considering per capita fatalities. Instead of 5,000 deaths in Kansas, we could have had something closer to 7,000. I'm, I'm comparing state to state, and that's a little hard to do. But do you, what's, what's your reaction to people said that we should have just had a hands-off approach? That's what the governor up there said. I had a hands-off approach. What, what would you have thought about that in Kansas? Well, we would have mimicked the same per capita case rates as what they saw in South Dakota. Uh, and I don't think that Sturgis is necessarily a paragon of public health sensibility. And uh, the number of cases that spun out of that to a many, many state region is spectacular. So uh, I will defend 
the, what Governor Kelly's uh, um, policy choices were. And I'm so glad we don't have those very high per capita numbers that South Dakota does. I've, I've struggled to try to process. I've witnessed this, but I've struggled to process it. The thinking of individuals who don't want to wear a mask, they don't want to distance themselves, they don't want the vaccine. <clears throat> it could be a distrust of government or it could be selfishness. Could be a combination of things, but in in the bottom line of it, for me, I, I get down to selfishness, and I'm sticking with that. So, what do you think? I think there's a lot of that. I think that there's this discussion of collectivism versus individuality. How much am I willing to take one for the team? So, am I willing to wear a mask? I don't like masks. I've worn them for 40 plus years as a doctor, but I don't really like masks. I did, did I like wearing them in social settings this year? No. Am I willing to take one for the team? Sure. Um, a lot of people don't feel that way. The other thing that I, that I think is that there's a certain bias in people's minds um, that says, I do not believe COVID-19 exists. I think it's way trumped up uh, to, at too great of a level. So I'm going to discredit everything that says that it's real. I'm going to discredit everything that says that it uh, needs to, I need to wear a mask to prevent it. So if you come up with the conclusion first and then work backwards on this ideology, you're going to come up with the wrong thing. That's like me as a doctor saying, I want my next patient to have, uh, uh, let's say, a gallbladder, uh, gallstones, and and because uh, I see they've got belly pain. If Do I want to talk myself into saying, oh, you've got uh, gallstones, but you haven't even looked at me, doctor. You haven't talked to me. You haven't put your hand on my belly. You haven't done any imaging studies. No, you got gallstones mm-hmm. uh, because I want you to have gallstones. Um, no, it's not. So don't come up with the conclusions first and then discredit the decision-making process that leads to it. It's, that's that's flawed way of thinking. I'm curious, looking broadly at the United States and the world, there are there's statistics out there that said maybe 33 million Americans have had COVID, 585,000 have passed away. But there's also the University of Washington School of Medicine says actually the um, the the fatalities and the incidence of the virus in the United States is much much higher. Do, do you have do you have a feeling about this? Yeah, I do. Um, I think that the number of hospitalizations and deaths is probably relatively accurate, um, maybe, but but probably a little understated. Um, people can die in their homes. People can get really sick and not go to the hospital. Um, and uh, but I think the the total number of cases is low. The total number of recorded cases is low because in part that's because you're looking at confirmed tests, right. test confirmations, not necessarily people who get it, stay home, don't ever go to the doctor, don't get a test. Right, and um, and it's going to get worse in terms of our data quality. And the reason is is that there's going to be and is now available home tests for COVID nineteen. Those will never see the light of day when it comes to. I should say we want those tests to be recorded so that we can keep an eye on what the positivity rate is. You know, we've been using positivity rate all along to help make decisions, you know, school openings and and things like that. But that's becoming a little bit less reliable as testing goes down and as home testing goes up. So we'll we'll rely a little bit less on testing uh, positivity rate. A couple more questions here. Um, The job is not over. Are we going to all have to get a booster shot, do we think? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I was on the phone uh, just a couple of weeks ago with uh, uh, the four-star general, uh, Perna, who runs Operation Warp Speed for the White House, and uh, we talked about uh, uh, boosters in the fall. 
mm-hmm. in the fall. Okay. Do you think I, the, those boosters will be readily available and um, under kind of a process like we have now? I think it, hopefully they'll be available in a process like they are now. The I think it's ultimately we're, we're not going to, this disease is not going to go away in our lifetime. I just don't believe. I think it's going to become endemic like influenza. If we could get to a very high penetration of the vaccine, there's a possibility it, it could go away completely. I think it's going to become more like influenza. Maybe the future will hold, we'll get the the quadrivalent influenza vaccine that also contains two different strains of mm-hmm. COVID-19. Mm-hmm. We'll get a once a year booster, off we go. That would be, I think that's kind of what the future looks like. It won't be immediately. Could you look for a second at India? The place is on fire there. Yes. And that is that because they just don't have the health system we have, plus they just don't have enough vaccine? Yes and yes. Um, I think that one thing we have to be a little bit careful about in India, and I need to do the math on this, is that they also have a billion people. So we look at raw numbers. uh, Is 300,000 cases a day divided by a denominator of a billion? Is that any different than what we're seeing in some of the states that are real hot spots in our country right now? Um, I don't think it's wildly different on a per capita basis, but they do not have the vaccine they need. The death rate's going to be higher because they don't have the same healthcare infrastructure. And there's whole swaths of populations there that live in dense quarters, lousy ventilation systems, people are on top of each other, sanitation is poor. So they're sitting ducks for a lot of this. One final question. Uh, people are dying to know, are there microchips in the vaccine? No, uh, they're, there's not. They're, they're not. And they're, oh, come you know, on. I, are uh, you sure? I don't want to follow people. <laughs> have you looked at Have you looked at a vial of vaccine under a microscope? Yes. And and see if there's a chip in there floating around. <laughs> there's no chips. Little wires on it. <laughs> no, that would be hard. Those needles, those little one-inch needles, <laughs> that'd be awfully hard to squeeze. I must up say, I'm a little disappointed because yeah. that sounded very intriguing. We you could make a movie about it. Doesn't need to something. be a microchip. People have phones in their back pocket. <laughs> Right, the massive micro-voluntary microchip. Dr. Lee Norman, KDHE Secretary, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. My name is Tim Carpenter. Thanks for listening.